everyone. Welcome to episode 50 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So, I can't believe that we're at episode 50. That's pretty exciting. I know, right? Exciting. Episode 50. We're hitting big numbers here. I know. We also have some other really big news for you as well. As of last weekend, we hit 1 million downloads. Yeah, it's all thanks to you guys. We appreciate you. Yes, obviously. You're, you guys are the listeners, so that is completely thanks to you. And we appreciate everyone who's been listening since the beginning, and of course, the new listeners as well. So we just can't wait now to get to 2 million. So before we begin, of course, we want to say thank you to everyone who did any type of reviewing since our last episode. And of course, if you like the podcast, it would be great if you subscribed on whatever platform you're listening to. And if your platform allows you to review, that would also be wonderful as well. Right? Absolutely. Okay. So without any further ado, let's get into episode 50. I'm so excited. I just want to keep saying episode 50. On July 26th, 2009, a Cablevision executive and mother of two drove her minivan the wrong way on the Taconic Parkway, a highway she was not even supposed to be on. In this car with her were her two children and her three nieces. After driving 1.7 miles into oncoming traffic, she collided with another vehicle, causing one of the most devastating crashes in New York history. On that day, eight people died, and four families were destroyed. Diane was always a responsible super mom. She would never do anything to put the children in danger. So, just what went wrong with Aunt Diane? Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Diane Hans was born in 1973 and grew up in a Catholic household in Floral Park, New York, which is located in eastern Nassau County in Long Island. She was the youngest child of four and the only girl. When she was nine years old, her mother made the unfortunate choice to leave her family and start a new life with a neighbor whom she'd been having an affair with. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty scandalous. That's crazy. That's like the whole, like, milkman thing. Yeah, except it's just a neighbor. True, true. Yeah, but... But I'm just saying. Yeah, I know. I don't know. Anyway, it's just weird. That's weird, though. It It is crazy for her to leave like that yeah i mean you know it's one thing like to have like you know if you know, unfortunately these things happen where you they do people cheat on one another but it's one thing to have to be done with the neighbor well you know, that well, changes a lot of things well i mean it would make sense if she was someone who lived at home and always saw the neighbor but it is unusual i mean affairs are common of course unfortunately but what's uncommon is a mother to leave her four children yeah you normally don't see that yeah it's pretty interesting and not to take any of them with her like she left them with the father so that's pretty interesting and although she was just nine when her mother left she was the only girl in the family and that puts diane in a an interesting situation because she is now the woman of the household so even though she's really too young to take on these responsibilities she does take them on and she has to take care of her brothers and her father which is kind of going to create the person she becomes i can see that yeah in high school diane continued to care for all of those in her family while also adding into the equation her school schedule and her soccer schedule 
Everyone said that Diane was great. She was able to do it all. She took care of the family, played sports, went to school, and also had a wonderful social life. All those around her said that the only thing Diane struggled with was her weight. It seemed that she often took care of others before she could ever take care of herself. So not wanting to stray too far from home, Diane attended Nassau Community College. She ended up attending the college on and off throughout the 90s, as she had to hold down jobs to support herself and her family. It was during this time, while at the wedding of a friend, that Diane met Daniel Schuler. The two instantly connected. Danny was an avid outdoorsman who instantly fell in love with Diane. And it seems, from all present interviews with the Schuler and Hans family, that the two had a very happy or at least complacent marriage. So there really was no fighting that was talked about. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's the first <laughs> we've covered. Yeah, There's it's no pretty fighting. interesting. There's no fighting going on. But sometimes, and what we're going to see with this case, no fighting sometimes is just as much of a problem as too much fighting. Because sometimes you do have to get, that's healthy. Having fights in a family or in a relationship is completely normal. And if you can't get it out and you can't work through communication, then like, what are you turning to? And that's kind of the direction this case is going to kind of take. Yeah. It seemed that Diane wore the pants in the relationship. She made all of the choices, cooked, cleaned, and brought in a very large paycheck as she was the director of credit billing and collections at Cablevision, earning her a salary of about $100,000 annually. However, this is not something that intimidated or threatened Danny as he liked the fact that Diane took charge and took care of the family and brought in the big paycheck because it meant that he could have more time to do the things that he enjoyed. And he can kind of just be, like, laid back. It really didn't bother him. He wanted her to be the one to do everything. Yeah. I, mean, I think we find that a lot. I mean, uh, well, I think to my, like, my childhood, I mean, like, my mom did everything. My mom was super mom. Well, I think it means, like, I mean, adding the addition of, like, her earning oh, of more. Of course, yeah. I mean, obviously, she's the breadwinner of her family. Yeah, sometimes men get intimidated by the fact that a woman is going to earn more. Right, And right. I think that nowadays, that mold has kind of been broken so much oh, that absolutely. it's not even a typical standard. Absolutely, because most of the time, you have both parents working to support a family anyway. So if you have, you know, if one makes more than the other, I, I just, I don't see a problem with that. I, it is what it is. It's yeah, just based it's, on your career choices. It's more of just a circumstance. But I yeah. mean, psychologists do say that sometimes it could cause tensions if the female makes more than the male. Yeah, it bruises the male ego. But As long as you communicated about it, maybe we gotta fine. S- maybe we have to settle down a little bit, you know? So at the time of the crash, the family was making a really difficult situation work for them. Danny was working nights as a public safety officer for the Nassau County PD, earning around $43,000 a year. It's so funny. Only in Long Island would you be considered a middle class family if you're an executive at Cablevision and then your husband's also making 43000 Yeah. Like you're like, oh, just middle class, you know, no big deal. I'm an executive. Well, yeah. I That's mean, what living in Long Island gets it's expensive. you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't really touch anything. So this was a great job for Danny. Um, it also meant that he had to work nights, though. So he worked from 4 p.m. to midnight. So he kind of had the opposite schedule of his entire family. And at the time of the crash, his son was six years old and his daughter was two. The Schuler family lived in a house that they bought in 2003 in West Babylon, New York. And they purchased this home for 
I had to look it up. $340,000. What a dream steal in Long Island. But it was during when the market was really super low. That's why. But, oh, God, why weren't we buying houses during that time? Well, it's... If I'm not mistaken, I mean, I don't know, I don't know too much about that area, but I would just assume that that was just a steal that they got on that house, because you know most houses in that area you can't touch for like half a million and up. No, I know that's why I'm so, saying three forty yeah. is a pretty good steal. Yeah, and it is. It's a three bedroom house with a pretty big yard in a nice neighborhood, so it must have been when the market was down. Yeah. Oh, go down again. Yeah, no, we're no, looking no. for house. We, please, we need that. Yeah, please, just market. <laughs> Just happened again. (laughs) So the neighbors of the family said that the Schuler family seemed very pleasant and that they never heard any fighting. Both Diane and Danny were very friendly to them. The other mothers that were friends with Diane said the same thing about the couple and the family. However, what they mentioned most is the fact that Diane was a perfectionist and her children's clothes were always ironed and so were her own. I think it's really interesting what other people say because I think it does hold a lot of weight. When you look at the community that they lived in, they were kind of small bungalow style homes and they were in very close proximity with each other. So you do hear your neighbors fighting. And I think that after this whole event took place, it was huge. It was national news. People were talking to anyone who knew the family and that if any fighting really did ever take place, a neighbor would have come out and said something. So if the neighbors are saying they didn't hear a crazy amount of fighting, then I mean, it's pretty believable because of how close they lived. Like it's the kind of place where like, if you really reached far out your bedroom window and somebody else was doing the same, you might be able to give each other a high five. Yeah, I mean, those houses, all their garages are like, some of them, a garage splits, like a a driveway would split a home. Sometimes even, like, it depends on where it is. The neighbors would know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Diane actually had an insane schedule. She managed to work at a high paying, high pressure job all day. She picked up her children from her mother in law's house. She brought them home, cooked dinner, cleaned the house, did the laundry. And she always waited up for her husband to come home at midnight and she would cook a snack and the two would share it together. It's kind of cute. It's super cute. I don't know if I would stay up to midnight to greet you with a snack. No, I don't think so. I mean, when I did work nights, I mean, you, you did wake, you would wake up and come see me though. Yeah, I would because I was terrified that someone was breaking in the house. So I needed to know it was you. <laughs> I mean, I used to do this. So yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. That's true. I guess they do want to be able to spend some time together, and that seems to be the only way that the couple could spend time. Yeah. But even though she would stay until he got home at midnight, and then she would wait up with him a little bit longer, she would go to bed and wake up at 6 the next morning and, like, do it all over again. So she really was working hard to keep the family happy. And I think everyone saw that. She was never spoken poorly of when it comes to her position as um, a mother and a wife. And from what everyone says in the interviews and reflections on Diane, she was a great person, a great boss, and a wonderful mother. However, they do say that she was unbelievably private. She never talked about her marriage, her family life, or her past. She never really let anyone in. Danny even admits that Diane never spoke with him about her mother leaving. So I just, she's unbelievably closed off. 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, I feel like most people would be, especially coming from a situation like that. I mean, I feel like they wouldn't want to talk about it. I mean, especially like you're a woman and your mother left, and I don't know. I feel like that's kind of it's kind of deep, a touchy subject. Yeah, it's really touchy. It's probably something very deep. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, if it happened to me, I wouldn't want to talk about it either. Well, I get that. I get not really wanting to open up too much about your mother over and over again, especially if it is a sensitive subject. But venting about how crazy it is being a mother of two young kids and having a husband that works nights. Like, I don't know. I can't imagine her not venting. I think that it has to do with, uh, I'm, I mean, I don't know. For me, it would be this. If that happened to me where my mother left and I didn't really have a good, stable, you know, kind of home situation, and the brunt of, like, you know, taking care of my family fell on me, I think that if I had, once I had my own family, I wouldn't even care about the stresses of taking care of two kids or having a husband that works nights, because you kind of want that, probably growing up that whole time, that you want some normalcy, like, you want that whole family life. So the fact that she does it now... And even though it's, like, so time-consuming and so stressful, she probably doesn't even care. Like, she enjoys every like second she, of it. I think it. she truly enjoyed every second of it. So you think that it's her, like, deep appreciation of the fact that she even has such a stable life? Yeah. That she doesn't want yeah. to vent about anything? I think that, like, yeah, like, that's pretty much, you know, what I think because... Well, it could be a really good yeah, way I mean, to look maybe at she it, just too. Doesn't, yeah, she's not going to vent about it because she's not... It's not bad stress, I guess, what I'm saying. It, I know It's time-consuming. And maybe it is stressful, but not enough to the point where you need to, like, vent about it. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. It is. So now that we know a little background about who Diane was, let's get into the weekend of July 25th to the 26th and what happened during the Schuler's weekend getaway and their tragic ride home. So Diane and Danny Schuler volunteered to take their three nieces, the daughters of Diane's brother, Warren, and her sister-in-law, Jackie, to their campsite at Hunter Lake Campground in Parksville, New York. They were just going to do so for the weekend. So here the kids would swim, fish, and have fun in the woods. This is something the family often did, so Warren and his wife agreed. They actually lent the Schulers their minivan, so the, it would be easier to transport the five kids, because they had two kids of their own. So the ride from West Babylon to the campground takes just over two and a half hours. So they took two separate vehicles. Danny is going to drive up in the pickup truck with the family dog and all of the supplies. Whereas Diane is going to drive the five children up in the minivan separately. So they do have two vehicles at the campground. By all accounts of those who were present at the campground that weekend, the couple and the children had a wonderful time. The campground is actually a series of trailers camped closely next to each other so everyone could hear what was going on at each other's campground. Very kind of similar to the way they have it at home. So the weekend went off without a hitch, but now it was time for the family to make the drive home. So let's go through the timeline of events. First place we're going to be is the Hunter Lake Campground in Parksville, New York. Between 5 and 6 a.m., Diane Schuler's husband, Danny, wakes up and begins clearing his, uh, cleaning his boat because he knows they're not going to be back there for a while. They use the boat all weekend. That's just a normal thing to do. Diane Schuler is going to wake up around 7 a.m., and she also begins to wake up the children. Her son, Brian, who is 
five years old, her daughter Erin, who's two, and her nieces Emma, who's eight years old, Allison, who's seven, and Kate, who is five. She gets the kids ready and she slowly begins to kind of pack up all of their stuff and load it into the minivan. At 9.30 a.m., the family leaves the campsite. Danny is in his pickup truck with the laundry and the dog, and Diane is in her brother's minivan with all the children. At this point, Emma calls her father, Diane's brother, to let him know that they are leaving the campground and they're headed home. The next time we have evidence of their whereabouts is at 9.56 a.m. in Liberty, New York. Diane Schuler arrives at a McDonald's. Security video shows the children eating and playing in like a playpen. The cashier says that Diane was acting completely normal. She didn't appear to be intoxicated and she wasn't acting strangely. She also did not smell like alcohol whatsoever. And at 10.33 a.m., captured on video, Diane and the children leave McDonald's. At 10.46 a.m., Diane stops at a gas station. She's seen walking in to, like, the store that's at the Sunoco gas station, and she is going to ask the clerk if they have any gel cap aspirin or Tylenol. The clerk tells her that they don't, and she walks out, gets into the car, into the minivan, and she drives away. And she seems fine. The attendant says that she's fine, and she doesn't drive away erratically whatsoever. And she leaves the gas station precisely at 10.58 a.m., headed south on Route 17. And this is when things are going to start to get strange. So now Diane is going to be seen in the Middletown area, which, Johnny, you're familiar with. I am. It's in my uh, old stomping grounds yes. in Orange County, New York. Yeah, when Johnny lived in Orange County, that's where we, that was the mall, was in Middletown, right? Yes. That you always went to? Mm-hmm. Well, we always went to because we had nothing else to do. There is nothing to do up there. <laughs> so you would just go to the mall. <laughs> exactly. So at 11.37 a.m. with Diane's phone, Emma is going to call her father, Warren, Diane's brother, while he's at work in Floral Park and says in a 47-second conversation that they may be late. This information is important because the girls had play practice later that day. Diane also gets on the phone, and at the end of the conversation, she reminds Warren to tell Jackie that she wants to buy two seats for the play, and that she only needed two seats because her two kids would sit on her and Danny's lap during the performance. So, she seems completely fine at 11.37 a.m. when she talks to her brother. Between 11.30 and 12 p.m., a witness, who's a lawyer, was headed south on the thruway, just around Suffer, New York, and he was in the center lane. And he says that Diane came up really quickly beside him and his wife in the right lane, and that she moved quickly into the center lane in front of him, and then back into the left lane, and continued to make erratic movements through traffic at very fast speeds. They saw the woman gripping the steering wheel, like kind of like a hard, concentrated look on her face, like she was trying to be really precise about what she was doing and she was concentrating. And they said that as the vehicle was kind of like weaving in and out of traffic, they actually saw the kids' heads like moving, like being jerked around in the car. Yeah, so she must have been going pretty quick. Yeah. 
At 11.45 a.m., another witness sees a woman who looks and is dressed like Diane, a long black sleeve t-shirt and short pants, bent over as if vomiting on Route 17 outside of Middletown. The minivan later passes the witness again and is kind of like zigzagging throughout traffic. So now we have a second person seeing her zigzag, but also has seen her vomiting on the side of the road. That's interesting. Yeah. Because you kind of wonder to yourself, why is she throwing up? Why is she vomiting? Right. Especially at 11.45 a.m. At 12.08 p.m., Jackie Hance, the mother of Emma, Allison, and Kate, calls Diane's cell phone, and they speak for less than two minutes, and she says that nothing seems wrong. She was just calling to check on the time to know if the kids were really going to be late for the play practice. But I think this is pretty interesting because maybe the witnesses were wrong about the time. They always say there's nothing worse than an eyewitness. But if she was doing all that weaving and she was truly like vomiting, it's weird that she was fine to Jackie on the phone. What I think might be happening is that she knew she was going to be late and she was trying to, like, go fast. Oh, I agree. 100%. 100%. So at 12.13 p.m., the minivan goes through the Harriman Toll Plaza. So now they're headed southbound on the thruway, the New York thruway, on the Harriman to Slotesburg Road. It's so funny because, like, these are, like, the roads that we travel, like, all the time. So yeah. it's pretty pretty interesting to hear. Hey, and it's a, it's a large highway. You know? Yeah. It's pretty big. Um, between 12.15 and 12.45, witnesses see a red minivan with children driven by a dark-haired woman weaving aggressively through traffic, straddling lanes, and, and blowing the horn. What I find, like, the most interesting, because you definitely have to know the area to understand what the person, the witness is saying here, is there was one guy who, now let's go back to the Harriman Toll Plaza, which is a pretty big toll plaza on the thruway, kind of, I would say the biggest toll plaza on the thruway. Yeah, and uh, just want to note, it's actually gone now. What do you mean it's gone? So what they did was, uh, you know, they had this, like, big program to do all um, Easy Pass. Uh, where they could just be scanned from your car. So there's no longer any more toll booths or any sort of uh, constructs on the highway anymore. They actually took it down recently. Wait, that actually makes me sad. Yeah, I know. Because the last time I went up to see a couple of buddies of mine, they changed the whole thing. Oh. But. I remember we'd always go there and I'd be like, oh, what was yeah. it Johnny's house? And <laughs> yeah, then just, I would take the yeah. wrong way and I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just picture that uh, there, there used to be toll booths there. So back at the Harriman Toll Plaza, there's a couple who is driving, and Diane seems to be trying to, like, get past them, get around them, but she can't, and they go through the toll plaza before her, and she is riding their tail so hard, so much, in fact, that they can't see her headlights. That's how close she is behind them. Oh, yeah, that's pretty close. <laughs> it's yeah. a little scary. So she then starts beeping her horn. And his wife starts getting nervous because she thinks she's going to get into an accident. They actually brace themselves because they think the minivan's going to hit their vehicle. She then tailgates them from the Harriman Toll Plaza to the rest area where there's a McDonald's. That's a pretty far distance. That is far, actually. To be tailgating someone. I think what's funny is, like you said before, like we know exactly where this is. So, yeah, it, that's a pretty long stretch I of highway. I would say it's probably about three, four miles. And not, not only is it three or four miles, but it's 
totally unnecessary. Because, because there's four lanes. There's a, it's a four-lane highway. Um, and everyone goes, <laughs> even though it's supposed to be 65, everyone goes 75, 80 over there. That's a really important thing to mention as well. People don't maintain the speed limit on the New York Thruway. It is go. a very aggressive road to be driving on, and it's intimidating. So having five people, five children in the car with you, you think you would be a little bit more of a defensive driver because of how erratic other people can be. But she seemed to be extremely aggressive, and they were tailgating this couple for a long period of time. It wasn't just a random rest stop that they pulled off of. It was a long way. I think what's very interesting about that whole tailgating situation with that couple is the fact that, like I said before, you can go fairly quickly on that highway. There would be no need, even with traffic, there would be no need for you to be that close to someone the whole way to the McDonald's at that restaurant. Right, to be that aggressive. It, it's just, you just make the left-hand turn. You know, you turn your blinker on, you go around it. Like, you go around them. And you and then if you want to switch back into the lane, like, to me, that's very odd to ride somebody for that long. It's weird behavior. Yeah. Yeah, especially having Super kids aggressive. in, your, in yeah. your car. Super aggressive. So eventually the two vehicles get to the rest area. And there's, like most rest areas, when you do do the pull-off, There's a car lane and a truck lane. The vehicle that's being tailgated, these two witnesses, they are going to drive into the car lane, whereas Diane goes into the truck stop area. They said that they saw her then get out of the vehicle, and it looked like she was getting physically sick. The couple, not wanting a confrontation, a little bit of an older couple, they go into the McDonald's, and when they go to leave and they look for the vehicle, her minivan is no longer there. Yeah, it's weird, too. Like, if she got out of her vehicle, because if she went through the truck stop lane, she would be over by the Sunoco gas station over there. And there's no bathroom or anything at the gas station. Yeah, it seems like she was just pulling over to get sick. Yeah. And then leaving. And that was at around 1230 that the couple left and didn't see the vehicle there anymore. So now we're at the point where she's at the Tappan Zee Bridge area around 12.55, which would make sense logistically. Being at the rest stop to the Tappan Zee, I would say it's about 25. Yeah, yeah. Especially if there's not a lot of traffic. So at 12.55 p.m., a 17-second call from Diane's phone goes to a wrong number. So just some random number that gets dialed on her phone, and the call lasts for 17 seconds. At 12.58 p.m., Diane calls Jackie Hans again at home. Jackie, the mother of the three girls in the car, says that Diane sounds really out of it. Now, this call lasted for about two and a half minutes, and it ended abruptly. At 1.01 p.m., Warren Hans arrives home, just as the call between his wife and, and his sister is ending. So he tries to call Diane back, and they speak for about eight minutes. And as Diane is going through the Tappan Zee toll around 1.02 p.m., she sounds really disoriented. And he knows she went through the toll because he was on the phone, and she was saying, I'm going through the Tappan Zee Bridge toll. At one point in the conversation, she's going to call her brother Danny, which is her husband's name. And again, he said she was just kind of like speaking nonsense and he was trying to get her to focus eventually he tells diane to put emma on the phone 
and to pull over. So Diane does pull over and puts Emma on the phone. Emma, who's eight years old, sounds really upset, but says that she's all right. And she keeps saying that there's something wrong with Aunt Diane. Her head hurts and she can't see. Her father asks her if she can read any signs that are close to her. And she said that she saw a sign for Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow. Diane gets back on the phone and Warren tells her to wait where she is. Warren then leaves his home in Long Island to head to the Tappan Zee Bridge. So if they're seeing signs for Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow, that means they just went over the Tappan Zee Bridge. That's so interesting. I, I, I mean, at least she pulled over, you know, to yeah. get some sort of a story, like the story straight. Like, okay, where are you? What's going on? Because this whole time, no one's able to make sense of anything she's saying this entire drive home. <laughs> right. It's, it, it's pretty interesting. And it seems like this also happened very quickly this kind of decline in the way that she's being. And this is kind of where things get bad because we lose contact with Diane Schuler and anyone who is in the minivan because while they are pulled over around the Terrytown Sleepy Hollow area just after the Tappan Zee Bridge, somebody is going to, and, and they really don't know who, but dial four wrong numbers in one minute. So is this the kids trying to reach out for help? Or is this Diane trying to call someone and she's just getting the number wrong? Either way, the phone is left neatly on a Jersey barrier, like a concrete barrier on the side of the road, just past the tolls. And then she drives away. So was she getting sick again, put the phone down and then forgot it? Probably. Or was that done intentionally? I want to say that it probably wasn't. She probably had the phone in her hand. And if she did get out again like she did the first time, she probably left it on the Jersey barrier. My whole question is, why is she sick? And what are her symptoms? Right. And that we don't know yet. So Warren Hans is going to continue to call the phone as he's driving from Long Island to the Tappan Zee Bridge. But Diane's phone keeps going to voicemail, not directly. So it's not turned off, but it's going to voicemail. And after about a dozen times, he just keeps leaving her voicemails every 20 minutes. He doesn't know what else to do. So the next sighting that we have is around 1.30 in the Mount Pleasant area. Sometime after 1.30 p.m., Diane turns right from Pleasantville Road onto an exit ramp for the Taconic State Parkway, headed in the wrong direction. At this point, it doesn't even make sense how she got to the Taconic. She must have taken a really bizarre route to get there because there is a way, obviously, to get from the exit of the Toll Plaza on the Tappan Zee Bridge to the Taconic because you're technically headed in a completely different direction because where you are from the Tappan Zee Bridge, you're kind of headed towards the New York City area. But the purpose of the Taconic State Parkway is to connect the Hudson Valley area where she was coming from to the Massachusetts Connecticut border. So like she's going completely north now. Yeah, it seems to me like she's completely lost because there would be no need for her to take the Taconic. Right. But what's I ironic is that she's not really headed north she's 
getting into the southbound lane on the Taconic headed north. So she's going the wrong way, despite four signs that say wrong way. Wow. (laughs) So she drives the wrong way into traffic for 1.7 miles, forcing more than a dozen motorists to swerve out of the way. This is when things are totally wrong. Up until the Tappan Zee Bridge, the route Diane was taking was the correct one. But now she's on the Taconic, headed north in the southbound, like we said, and there's no reason for her to be here. Eight calls are made to 911, informing the police that there's a minivan going in the wrong direction. All calls are frantic and state that she is staying dead straight and she's not moving for anyone. And it's and the calls are super frantic. That's bizarre. See, I could see... Okay. I can see if someone <laughs> went onto the highway, not just this highway, but any highway, and, you know, they're just not familiar with the area, and they don't know, and they go down the wrong way, but to stay dead center on the highway, going the wrong direction, you would think they would try to pull off to the shoulder, the, you know, the that southbound lane shoulder, and not just continue to go straight. Well, I think that it was either she was determined to continue going, Or she didn't know that she was headed in the wrong direction. There was something really wrong. We just don't know what. Yeah, I mean, she had to have not been able to see or something. You know, it's it's bizarre. Yeah, it's it's really scary and it's strange. And the phone calls coming into nine one one are also terrifying because the other people don't know what to do. And luckily, it was a low traffic time, so people were able to at first avoid her. But unfortunately, a tragic crash is about to happen. So where we left off, Diane and the five children are headed very quickly in the wrong direction on the Taconic State Parkway. At 1.35 p.m., the minivan that Diane is driving is going to hit head-on another vehicle, an SUV, that was carrying three Yonkers men to a family party. The SUV that Diane hits then hits a third vehicle, almost T-boning it, stopping its momentum. Now, even though the vehicle has been stopped, the injuries sustained by the three men in the SUV are fatal. The minivan then goes off the road, rolling down a grassy hill, rotating, and eventually coming to a stop. Because of the accident, the minivan begins to burn. And of course, when vehicles begin to burn, it's not like you see in movies. It's a slow burn that takes place. Now, the reason why this accident is so fatal and so horrific, because we'll we'll post pictures of the cars online, and I'm sure you've seen them, but they don't even resemble vehicles after this accident. And and it's like you truly don't understand how it, it even happened, but... Diane's vehicle was traveling 85 miles an hour when it hit the SUV head-on. Yeah, I mean, when something's going that fast, I, I, I mean, there's really no way someone can live through that. I mean, you know, 35 is pretty brutal. 45 miles an hour is brutal. And, uh, you know, and anything after that. But, you know, I mean, 85 miles an hour head-on, 
You're not going to come out of that <laughs> feeling okay, you know? No. And at 1.37 p.m., the state police are told by the Hans and the Schuler family that Diane may be having a medical emergency, but they can't reach her. So they are asking the police to track where she is. The problem is when police start looking for Diane Schuler, they start looking around the Tappan Zee Bridge area. They have no idea she is where she is. But meanwhile, first responders are responding to the accident. And eventually the family is told that the minivan has been involved in a really serious accident. The men in the 2004 Chevy Trailblazer that was hit by Diane Schuler were 81-year-old Michael Bastardi and his son, Guy Bastardi, who was 49, and their family friend, 74-year-old Daniel Longo. The men, like we said, were killed on impact. After the crash, the first responders stood holding up sheets to protect the dignity of the slain men. While those in the 2002 Chevy Tracker, who they kind of T-boned, they only sustained minor injuries, so they had been taken to the hospital. That's just such like a... I don't know, like disgusting thing that they have to even be holding up the sheets so people don't take pictures. But well, you know how people are. I mean, look. I mean, I know. They, I mean, especially those people that were right there at that moment. Of course, they're gonna want to see what's going on. Yeah, I have to say, I saw only one time. It's so, you know, actually kind of scarily. The roads by us are actually extremely dangerous because of the speeds that people travel, but also the high traffic. But seeing that white sheet laid out is probably the scariest thing that you can see while you're driving, knowing that someone oh, just definitely. passed away. Yeah. And usually, too, that's also for the others on the, you know, that's for the other side of traffic as well. To so not look. people aren't looking and right. getting distracted and causing further accidents. Um, and actually, a lot of highways now, what they're doing is creating higher um, barriers. barriers so that way you cannot look to the other side. Yeah. So witnesses who first saw the crash stopped their vehicles to help those who were in peril, in danger right away. They didn't know if there were any survivors, and if there were, they needed to get them out of the van because it was catching fire. So two men ran down the hill where the minivan had fallen. It was catching fire more and more quickly as time was going on, and they knew that the most imperative thing for them to do would be to remove the victims from the vehicle. The minivan was a wreck, and there was no way to open the side doors any longer on the vehicle. So the men, in order to get to the children they saw piled up in the back, had to break the passenger side front window to unlock the door. They finally got the passenger side door open, but when they opened the door, the body of Diane Schuler fell onto their legs, and she was badly injured to the point of disfigurement and she was very clearly no longer alive the men had no time to even process that information and they had to step past her just to get to the children as the car was burning the children were pulled out one by one and laid on the grass far enough away from the car so the fire would not affect them the men wept as they pulled the children out, some not breathing, two crying and gasping for air. 
Once the children were all safe, they rushed to the trailblazer. The men, they noticed right away, were unfortunately no longer breathing. One horrifically laying across the roof of the vehicle. First responders finally got to the scene. The first thing they realized was that Brian, five-year-old son of Diane, was crying and complaining of pain. This was a really good sign because he was alert. So he was sent to the hospital right away. One of Diane's nieces was also brought to the hospital, but she was clinging to life. And later that day, she died from her injuries. All other children at the scene had died in the accident. Brian was the only survivor. That's crazy. That's so sad. It is. So Michael Bastardi, his son Guy, and their friend Daniel Longo pass away. Diane is also dead. Her two-year-old daughter Erin died. Kate, Allison, and Emma, the three Hans girls, also die. So there's eight victims of this crash. And could you imagine being a parent and, you know, you think it's safe to have your children with family and they never come home? Well, yeah, I think that that is kind of like the conundrum that the Hans family found themselves in because they love Diane. That's their sister, but she's also now responsible for the death of their three children it's yeah. like it was it's a weird kind of situation but you know the accident was extremely tragic but it's the aftermath and the way that things kind of play out after the accident that makes it even more tragic the funeral for all families involved were devastating the bastardis the longos they wanted answers and the Schulers and the Hanses were trying to understand what went wrong. Because Diane would never do this. Like, what happened? At the funeral for his daughters, Warren Hans, the brother of Diane, read the following statement. My sister was a phenomenal mother, aunt, and friend. And all of us are grateful for the love and care that she showered on our family. What we ask of you going forward is that you keep my girls, my sister, and my niece in your daily prayers. There is a miracle child in all of this, and he is getting better by the day, and he is loved by more people than he will ever understand. Love your children, cherish your children, kiss your children, and don't ever forget. That's so sad. He couldn't... There was obviously more to his speech but he couldn't finish after that yeah and and you know it, it, it must be hard because you it's almost like you don't have time to even grieve or feel like anger or like you know that this happened and yeah. like diane's responsible well how do you wrap your head you around all of it. that no you yeah. can't even do it so five days after the funerals on august 4th 2009 an autopsy that had been performed prior to the funeral, the results of the autopsy and the toxicology report are going to be given to the public. And they shocked everyone who was following the case. Because 
Diane Schuler had a blood alcohol level of 0.19. Now the legal limit is 0.08. At this level of alcohol consumption, there was a reduction in reaction time, a loss of gross motor skills, staggering and slurred speech. That's what happened at 0.19. However, this is just a blood alcohol level. And when someone is involved in a suspicious death, the medical examiner uses multiple specimens. Because of this, the alcohol level of her vitreous humor and her gastric contents were also tested as well. And that's just because, obviously, you're going to get a better understanding of the alcohol in her system through her vitreous humor, which is the in your eyes, and your gastric contents, because that's going to tell you what had been consumed and hadn't yet processed through the blood. So it's going to give you a better understanding of her alcohol consumption. This can be done in someone, obviously, who has died, which is the case with Diane Schuler. Now, the alcohol level of her vitreous humor was 0.23, and her gastric content was 0.25, saying that she had consumed so much alcohol that it had not yet gone into her bloodstream. So it was going to rise above the 0.19. At these levels, one is entering into alcohol toxicity in which unconsciousness and death could occur. Now, when asked by reporters, the director of toxicology for the Westchester County Coroner's Office is going to reveal that these alcohol levels could only be accomplished with a consumption of 10 alcoholic beverages. That's 10 shots, 10 glasses of wine, 10 beers. That's crazy. That's a lot. That's a lot of alcohol. Wow. I mean, she must have been drinking a lot, than maybe even the night before into the next day. Well, no, because everyone says she was fine, and then it hit her. That's so bizarre. Yeah, very strange. Unless, maybe, like, we'll get into our theories later, but... It gets weirder because in addition to the alcohol levels, Diane also had THC in her system, which is a chemical responsible for most of marijuana's psychological effects. Specifically, she had 113 nanograms per milliliter, which means that she must have introduced the THC into her system anywhere between 15 minutes and an hour before her death. Nobody thought that she was doing any of these things, which is just so bizarre. If nobody from the family knew that she was drinking or somehow ingesting or smoking marijuana, because that's really the only way you're going to get that, you know, mm-hmm. then, you know, how does that even, how does this all pan out, you know? I don't know. It's actually, it's it's really interesting because we don't even hear about Nobody mentions about Diane being a drinker or a smoker. But then again, she's a very private person. So maybe this is something that's happening and we just really don't know about it. But I will say that having 10 drinks and that amount of THC in your system, 
it kind of answers a lot of questions. Well, it does. And also it answers, you know, that she's definitely impaired. Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no doubt about it. She was impaired. Well, there's actually something else that comes out. Well, not comes out, but is explained that I didn't even know. The toxicologist is also going to say that the fact that she consumed alcohol and then had pot means that the THC was absorbed faster into her system and the effects of the THC were exacerbated because of her alcohol consumption before the fact that she smoked pot. So if you drink alcohol and then you smoke, the THC is absorbed faster and has more of an effect on you. So that, that. so that would maybe answer for the actions of Diane that day. Um, I maybe like what you were saying is could possibly she have been drinking a lot the night before they left and she still had alcohol in her system, in her blood, in her gastric contents. And then she smoked to calm down and that it just hit her crazy hard because she still had a BAC level. See, I know. Like, I don't. It's just like not that much that you're driving the wrong direction on the Taconic. Well, this is the only thing. I mean, I'm not an expert. I don't smoke, but usually, I, I maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> but usually when it's edible, when you're eating edible, you know, marijuana used in edible things, you know, whether that be brownies, cookies, pretty much anything like that, it is absorbed faster. Um, believe it or not, by by ingesting than actual smoking. No, I understand that. Which but... would, which would, but, well, I'm not done. Okay. Which would actually make sense if she had it. Let's say that in that small window, which then, with that happening, increased the effects of her smoking and possibly with the drinking, and it just kind of came right. together in this weird way. Well, we find out later that Diane does smoke quite normally like in her regular life so she doesn't like eat edibles she's a smoker ah okay to get her to go to sleep she'll smoke before bed so this is something that she does her sister-in-law will later say almost on a nightly basis so she is a regular user Yeah, so she was most likely, you know, having a good old time. So so I don't think the THC in her system has anything, um, is anything unusual for her. Okay. I mean. But, but the fact that she is driving in a car with five kids and smoked probably isn't the best idea, but was something happening to her that made her feel like she had to smoke? And that's the question. Or was something happening to her that she felt like she had to drink and to smoke? What came first? Right. Or what happened? Because although she may have been an alcoholic in her private life, or she may have been a pot smoker in her private life, by all accounts, she never introduced it while she was around the children. So it's a little strange. Oh, it is. So before, okay, let's get back to the episode. 
So after the release of the toxicology report, a representative of the Schuler and Hans family made a statement with the family standing behind them. And they stated that there was no benefit from the police making that public statement. Diane was not an alcoholic, nor did she consume alcohol that day. She rarely drank and she would never have put the children in that kind of danger. The family stood behind the belief that something must have been medically wrong with her as she was headed in the wrong direction and a trip that was only supposed to take two and a half hours ended in tragedy after four. Diane's sister-in-law, Danny's brother's wife, who was also the godmother of Brian, is going to give her own statement. Now this woman, her name is Jay, and she's going to play a big role like after in the aftermath. Her statement says that she stands behind the fact that her sister-in-law would never jeopardize the children in any way. When the details of the toxicology report emerge, public opinion completely shifts. People don't send condolences to the Schuler and Hans family anymore. Rather, they condemn them for condoning the alcoholism of Diane and entrusting her with their children. This is something that puts the family on defense. However, it is hard for the family to deny the facts as in the wreckage of the minivan, beneath the driver's seat, is found a broken bottle of absolute vodka. Well, that'll do it. Yeah. And I know, I know that this is going to sound like weird, but vodka is the most, I don't want to say the most used alcohol, but someone who's like an an alcoholic, like a vet of doing this, they use vodka all the time because it can easily be masked. Whereas like some other alcohols can't, like you can smell it more or like, I don't know, just from what I've experienced, it's, you know, people that have been alcoholics in my family, it's, it's always been vodka. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's colorless. It's, you can't really detect it as much as you could others. It's, right, it's, right. So the Schuler family is going to refuse to accept the reports and the circumstantial evidence, obviously. They stick by the claim that Diane was sick. Maybe she had a stroke. The family goes on a campaign and claims that they will stop at nothing to prove that Diane did not do what the toxicology report claims she did. They first hire a private investigator who unfortunately ends up scamming them, and he's a complete jerk hole. And then they finally agree to be part of a HBO documentary, which the network chooses to call There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane. And if you're interested in this case and you haven't seen that documentary, I highly suggest you do so because as HBO does with all of its documentaries, it is impeccably done. It's it's wonderful. It's it's emotional. It's eye-opening. And it really makes the viewer question, what happened that yeah. day? The doc focuses around Danny Schuler and his sister-in-law, Jay, who is, like we said before, the wife of Danny's um, brother. It's actually pretty interesting, her backstory. You don't really get it till the end. But it seems like her sister also dry- died in a drunk driving accident. But her sister was responsible for it. And was most likely the one who was drunk. So she has an interesting role to play emotionally when it comes to this. Because she's saying, I know like what my sister did and that she was probably drinking. But I don't believe that Diane was drinking that day. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> um, I, I mean, no, um, 
I don't, I'm not saying it to make a joke, but it's kind of like how they say, like for alcoholics, like, you know, first step is kind of acknowledging the fact that you're an alcoholic in order to seek help. It's the same thing here. If indeed she had an issue, it's, it's, that's the hardest part is for the family to acknowledge that she indeed yeah. did have an issue and maybe they just didn't know about it. You know, if she was as private as, as you know, like they, like they all said she was. Then maybe it's it's a possibility that she drank and she smoked. Let's not forget, also that the husband, right, the other caretaker of the children, was not home all the time. I mean, meaning he worked nights. Yeah, right. So he wasn't really there, you know, for the important hours of the day, where you know, you know, where she could go do that. Right, is what I'm saying. Like she can go. Let's just say she can go out to the back porch. Or in the backyard and just smoke a joint or something. The well, husband's not I'll there. I'll say that being an alcoholic, he could even be home and she could do it. Probably. And he could have no clue that it's happening. But what happening. I'm saying is she has all that free time at nighttime when those children are, let's say, in bed. Sleeping. To do whatever right. she wants. So you don't know. No, you don't know. And I and I do think, like what you said is a good point, it's hard to accept when you don't know someone's an alcoholic in your family that you're close to and that you love, it's hard to accept that first that they are an alcoholic. Now imagine trying to do so when they're dead and when they have been responsible for the death of other people in your family. So it's hard and you go on the defense and that's exactly kind of what this family was doing. But it it's just so interesting to me because when I first heard about this case... I mean, everything screams to you, there's no way that this executive mother super mom of two would do that with the children in the car. And all I have to say to that is sometimes it's the ones that you least expect that would do something like this. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I also want to touch about an, uh, upon another thing, too, like just for the flip side of it. You know, mm-hmm. they all, uh, her family also claims maybe she was sick. I like, I don't know all the symptoms of diseases. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. But like, if her vision was impaired, is it possible maybe that she had like early MS and that she didn't know? Like, those are signs of like, well, that would vision be something problems. though that would have come up in the autopsy. Yeah, that's true. And it didn't. But, but like, you see what I'm saying though? I'm also, yeah. I'm also saying this because even if she was sick, no, like I they understand. claim. Um, there would have been signs of it, but that is something that could, you know, I mean, it's not possible because they didn't find it uh, right. when they did the autopsy. Well, what the family argues and their their argument is, did those conducting the autopsy or doing the investigation realize that there was a blood alcohol level present and then kind of half-assed their way through the rest of the autopsy? not detecting if there was something else, maybe a stroke that took place. So that's the argument of the family. But when we watch the documentary, you definitely see that Danny is struggling hard with being a single father and that Brian is also trying to struggle with the aftermath of the accident. He lost his mother, his sister, his cousins, And he also is dealing with being the sole survivor of a crash, which is hard for a little boy to kind of come to terms with. He sustained a severe head injury, which resulted in giving him 
the condition of ocular nerve palsy, which affects his right eye, which he had to undergo a few surgeries for, and he has to do daily eye exercises to build the strength of his eye back up. So he was affected by this crash, and he is seeing a therapist after several emotional meltdowns that he had. And I'm sure he has, like, survivor's guilt. Yeah, well, of course, he's he's too young to truly understand and, and verbalize those emotions. So I think they came out in meltdowns, which is why he's seeing a therapist. Yeah. So when asked about that day, Brian only remembers that his mother's head hurt a lot and that she kept saying that she couldn't see. Then the next thing he remembers is flying around the car like Superman. So... Let's get into what the family's trying to prove here. They hired a PI firm to help them test the blood from the toxicology report. They think that there's a possibility that it's not even Diane's blood that was tested. So they want to pay for a DNA test to compare the samples. They also want another toxicology report done on the blood. The PI firm that they hire is the firm of Thomas Ruskins, and he's definitely shady. I mean, this documentary, it comes out full force. I don't care what anybody says. He keeps asking the family for more and more money. And it's hard for this middle class working family who's now not just paying their own bills, but they're trying to pay these medical bills for more and more money. It's hard for them to pay for it. And they can't raise the money because people aren't sympathetic to their cause because people are blaming Diane for this crash and blaming them. So there's no like, let's raise money to find out what happened. So in the end, the family ends up paying $40,000. And the family claims that as soon as they paid the money, that they never heard from Ruskins again. And that they think this is because he knew that they didn't have any more money left to give. So during the time of the documentary, when the HBO producer reaches out to him, Ruskins and his firm says that he'll only participate if they give him a minimum of $25,000, which is absolutely ridiculous because even HBO, who is like the documentary kings of the world, don't have that kind of budget to just pay a PI to do an interview. $25,000. Like, who does this guy think he is? And he says, we work for tens of thousands of dollars a day. So to remove resources from my cases to help find things that I have in storage for you isn't worth my time. So I think it goes to show you that he emotionally was not invested whatsoever and was just looking for money, really. But eventually throughout the documentary, we learn that Ruskins did get all the testing done, just never told the family. And Diane's DNA does match the blood tested in the toxicology report and the redone toxicology report had the same results as the first done by the medical examiners in Westchester County. But despite all of this and meeting with another medical examiner and him saying like, no, that autopsy was done 100% right, Danny is still trying to get the body of his wife exhumed. Now, despite the fact that HBO had given him $100,000 to obtain proper representation and permission to do so to get the body exhumed. This never took place still to this day. The body hasn't been exhumed. I think it's because there's nothing else to find. But this is what Danny's looking for. HBO was also able to get a lot of Diane's medical records. And the family seems to be grasping to the fact that Diane had an abscessed tooth 
dating back to 2005. She had never had it fixed. It seemed like she had a lot of dental problems that her family knew nothing about. She had a root canal and she actually walked out halfway through the work being done to the abscessed tooth that hurt so bad in 2008. And they kept saying that before the accident, she kept like holding her jaw because she was uncomfortable from her mouth pain. So what they're thinking is that somehow, maybe this infection from her tooth either spread to her brain, which is possible, or caused a stroke or was causing so much extreme pain that she would do anything to self-medicate or maybe she was self-medicating the whole time and she wasn't an alcoholic, but she was drinking to stop the pain from the tooth and or she was smoking to stop the pain. You know what? That sounds like a reasonable um, theory, but this is just grasping for, th- uh, for straws. Yeah. Because when you're a family that's in denial of what took place and what your family member did to other families and your own, you will try to find anything that you could start to make a case for, for your family member. That she was not what the toxicology report showed. Right. So, once again, at the same time, I agree. I could see how having that might be an issue, like with the tooth. Yeah. But it's grasping for straws. I think it at, at you know, it's such it's so minuscule, I think that right. you know, I don't know, because to self-medicate for that long over a fucking tooth, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it, think about an infection. You've had an abscess in your tooth. Could you imagine not treating it for 4 years? I also had cellulitis and almost died of a blood infection. Right. So infections happen and but, they spread. But you once you start to feel like there's something wrong that you cannot handle on your own, you get it checked out. So I just... Well, for some reason, she didn't want to because she left halfway through I, her know, treatment. I, I, I don't... I hate to be hard on people, but, I mean, she made a lot of choices that... Uh, bad choices that ended her life well. and the, her child and her... And seven ne- others. Yeah, and seven other people. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I just think that that's grasping for the straws well, of the family. Right, and I, I agree with you. What is entirely obvious during... You know, the, all the research I did, watching all the documentaries that I did, um, is the fact that Diane's immediate family wants to preserve her memory. But based on everything I know now, I don't think it's it's not at their own fault because I don't think they really ever understood who Diane truly was. Because she was so closed off and tightly wound and she was a perfectionist. This, I think, is the result of her relationship with her mother Like, her brothers had a relationship with her mother, their mother, even after she left the family. But Diane continued to refuse to talk to her. And it seems like because when she was a child, she went through this traumatic event. And when you're a child and you go through something traumatic and you lose control, like your whole life you try to keep control. Yeah. And that's what she was trying to do. And that's why she became super mom. She became perfectionist. She became an executive. She became all of these things because for the first time in her life, she could control. Yeah. I know what you mean. But she stayed closed off and she didn't let anyone in. So maybe she was self-medicating not just her physical pain, which she may have had from a four-year-old abscess in her tooth, but of her emotional pain that she never spoke about. Yeah, and you know, it, it is sad to see, you know, someone prominent 
have a you know a rising and a fall of their life you know and not to mention that those who have early trauma are predisposed to mood disorders and chemical dependencies and it seemed like she might have had the chemical dependency part yeah it might have been real hot you know she kept it hush hush so i don't know it's also interesting too because um the documentary actually isn't going to be amazing for danny schuler because he does say some pretty unpopular things uh, in the documentary, he mentions that he didn't want to have children and now he's stuck caring for Brian when he doesn't want to. And it's hard being a single father. But I think that I don't think that statement necessarily was meant by him. I think it was more of him lashing out because he was upset and missed his wife. But then reports come out that he was suing Warren Hance because it was his vehicle. But that's completely untrue. He wasn't suing Warren Hance. He was suing the insurance company which is very typical in that situation because he was just trying to get Brian's medical bills paid for. It's not, but things came out negatively about him. The Hans family, Jackie Hans in particular, the mother of the three nieces who died in the crash, she's going to write a book called I'll See You Again. And the Hans family actually completely stops talking to the Schuler family. They were very upset about what took place in the way that they kept fighting it and fighting it what was happening and not truly accepting the fact that maybe diane was drinking and smoking and they they kind of stopped talking to them they still do accept that diane's a wonderful person because it doesn't take away from who she was is what warren and jackie try to say but this was something that we need to accept and come to terms with but the pain of losing their three girls was very difficult for them and at one point they make a murder-suicide pact. But they, when they talk about it, they discuss that they couldn't decide who would do what and that they couldn't hurt each other. And at the insistence of, of Jay, Diane's sister-in-law, they go to a fertility clinic and they actually have another daughter who gives them another reason to live. And that's what they're doing now. They're trying to live through the tragedy with the their new daughter wow yeah and it's crazy and also another huge factor into this is the bastardi family and the longo family who those three men who were just trying to enjoy their day their afternoon in july just their lives were tragically cut and the bastardi family has come out publicly and said we forgive diane schuler it's the ones alive that we haven't forgiven yet Because they're still denying what took place. And they're not accepting responsibility for what happened. So they keep dragging this case on and trying to get people's attention. And they want to exhume the body. And they want retesting. And they just won't accept that maybe you didn't know her as well as you did. But that's a hard pill to swallow too. I agree with those people though. I agree with them. When you're in denial, like I said before, you will do that. So... You'll look for anything, but, um, no, I understand. And then, so when it comes down to it, um, oh, I also want to mention that the child passenger protection act is going to be passed, not just because of this case, there were other cases as well, but now it's a felony to be under the influence of any substance having childs under 16 years of age in the vehicle with you. It's a felony now. 
And not to mention it's child endangerment. Well, yeah, it's a lot of other things, <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't a felony. Right, felony right. like consequences didn't follow it. So there's a lot of things that people people do debate this. The whole situation is bizarre that it's like you don't think because of the direction she took and going the wrong way. It's like, was there something really wrong with her? Because that's what it comes down to. Was something medically wrong with her that caused her to do that? Because if someone was just drunk, wouldn't they like pull over to the side? Is what kind of cultivates this conversation. But what I thought was so interesting, and this actually, it reminded me of the Spreckles Mansion case as well, because Ambien was involved. When I was watching the What's Wrong with Aunt Diane documentary and HBO got her prescriptions, there was sleeping medication that she was prescribed, Ambien. So what if she was taking Ambien to go to sleep and she was smoking and she was drinking? This would That would cause the craziness too. People have been known to take Ambien to go to sleep at night and then all of a sudden they don't even remember driving to work the next day. Yeah, like her mental state was definitely not intact. I right. mean, for her to make those decisions, not only to be on the wrong side of the highway, but also the fact that she even wound up on the Taconic Parkway. Yeah. So I think that her mental state was definitely not there. And that's pretty much just a takeaway is yeah. that she just wasn't there mentally. There's no right. way. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, my final thought process is that unfortunately, there's two, tra- there's, well, there's so many tragedies. But the first tragedy is the fact that I think Diane was maybe nursing alcoholism or some addiction because she couldn't open up and she couldn't deal with, you know, the ghosts of her past. And unfortunately, many families lost a lot of people because of this. But then another tragedy is the family's inability to maybe make peace with what happened. So it's it's really, it's just sad all over the place here. I agree. So I agree. we forgot to do it in our last episode, but we want to always do our unsung hero. So in this case, it's a little hard to it's come hard because it's such hero. a tragic case and it might be it might be stupid but i think my unsung hero is going to be the law that was passed after um you know to ensure that this doesn't ever happen again i mean there's really not i in my head i can't think of any unsung hero on this it's a little difficult no it is a little hard my unsung hero is the hbo producer who added in the conversation with that horrible private investigator about him requesting $25,000 because it's actually comical. And he's like, yeah, like the law part said, like, I shouldn't even do this for under 25. And she's like, thousand. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a little comic relief in the middle of one of the saddest documentaries I ever saw. It was, it was terrible. And it's sad. It's hard to do an unsung hero here, but the producer and the act. Yeah. (laughs) We're happy for them. All right, guys. Like always, if you enjoy this podcast and you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to because the reviews really help us big time and we appreciate all of the kind words. We love it. And if you would like to donate to Patreon, you could. That's patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And we can't wait to come back with episode 51. Yep. We can't wait. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.